1: Today, on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
2: This is a great little takeaway, okay? Haman is a picture of pride. Mordecai is a picture of humility. Humility. What happens when someone tries to exalt himself? He's put down. What happens when somebody humbles himself? He's lifted up. And that's what we have going on here. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This
1: is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Esther. Have you ever felt as though you're being resisted by God? Perhaps you've been laboring in prayer, and yet you sense as though there is a lack of harmony in your relationship with the Lord. Today, Pastor Gary will be explaining how it's possible for God to resist us, especially if we're remaining in a prideful state. In our text today, we'll be learning how Haman represents pride and how Mordecai represents humility. God always honors those who remain humble, and He opposes the proud. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Esther Chapter 5 for Part 1 of today's message titled, When Plans Backfire.
2: Let me give you an overview of chapters 5, 6, and 7 today so that we can understand what is happening here. What's going down is that Esther has invited her husband, King Xerxes, and Haman, this wicked, evil, anti-Semitic noble of Persia who has hatched this plot to annihilate the Jews. She invites the two of them to a banquet. There are actually two banquets here. The first one is mentioned in chapter 5. The second banquet is in chapter 7. The first banquet here in chapter 5 is just kind of like an appetizer. It is to whet King Xerxes' appetite for more. And so at this first banquet, he asks Esther, What is your request? What is your petition? And she basically says, well, I'll give that to you if you'll come back for a second banquet. But for tonight, just enjoy the wine and enjoy the food. Because, listen, Esther is a smart woman. All right, In chapter 5, verse 9, it says that he leaves happy and in high spirits. And he goes home, and he has a party. It's a boasting party. He has a party. He has his wife there, Zeresh. He has all his friends there. It tells us in verses 11 and 12. And it's for the sole purpose of just boasting about himself. He has all these friends there and his, and his wife. And, he's, and at verse 11 says he boasts to them about his vast wealth. His many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. So here's Haman, just all excited about how he's going to make everything great again, how wealthy he is, and all this stuff. And so, and, and the people are just they're eating this up, right? All his friends and his wife said, "This is fantastic. You are terrific. You are a wonderful man." Haman says, "Yeah, but there's one thing that ruins my day. It's that Jew Mordecai. He never bows down to me when I walk through the city gates." And I hate him and I hate all the Jews. He's very anti-Semitic in this story. And so look at the advice here that his wife and his friends give him in verse 14. This is what they basically say in verse 14. I'll I'll paraphrase it. They say, you know what? What you need to do is you need to get rid of Mordecai. And then then your problems will be better. You know, they'll go away. You need to build a 75-foot tall gallows. And then you need to go into the king, because since you guys are buds now, you guys are really close, you need to go into the king tomorrow morning, early in the morning, and ask to have Mordecai hanged on the gallows. That's what you need to do. Because if you could hang Mordecai, then you'll be happy, and you'll be able to enjoy the second banquet without that Jew Mordecai bothering you. All right? Now, question for all of us. If you're really mad at somebody, and you want to see him hanged, How high does a gallows really need to be? So what we have going on here is what we call overkill, right? You don't need a 75-foot tall gallows to hang one person, but it's overkill. We need to get rid of Mordecai. We need to get rid of all the Jews. It's rage here directed towards Mordecai. Now, Haman leaves. He says, that's great. The next morning, he says, why don't you guys start building the gallows? I'm going to saunter off to the king, and I'm going to ask him if he'll have Mordecai hanged. Meanwhile, back at the palace, I'm going to summarize a little bit of chapter 6. God intervenes in another providential way. Remember, Haman is on his way to ask Xerxes if he can hang Mordecai in the gallows. But all along, in the palace, after that first banquet, Xerxes goes to bed. The Bible says he can't sleep. He tosses and turns. He has a restless night. And so he gets up in the wee hours of the morning, and he asks his attendants, Why don't you guys bring out for me the journals of the king, the annals of the king, which detail all of the king's, just the history of the great events of the Persian Empire under his watch. And so, you know, when you can't sleep, it's just like, you know, read to me a little bit about some of the great accomplishments I've had. So they open up the annals of the king. And just coincidentally, all right, this is providence, but coincidentally, right? They open up to a story in the king's annals about how Mordecai, The same Mordecai that Haman once hanged. The same Mordecai who's the older cousin of Queen Esther. How Mordecai intervened and exposed a plot to assassinate the king earlier on. In fact, we didn't read through it, but back in chapter 2 of Esther, it tells us that Mordecai did that. He's at the city gates. He overhears two guys talking about how they want to assassinate King Xerxes. So Mordecai reports it to Queen Esther. Queen Esther tells Xerxes and gives Mordecai credit and then the two assassins, the attempted assassins, are themselves executed. The king is hearing this re-read. And he says to his attendants, what did we ever do to honor Mordecai because of the way that he intervened and exposed his plot to assassinate me? And the attendants said, well, to be honest with you, king, we didn't do anything. The king says, we got to do something. About that time, all right, who enters in the palace? Haman, this is early morning hours now. Haman is coming in because he wants to ask the king to hang Mordecai, right? All right? So he says, come on in, perfect timing, bro. He says, I need some advice. What should be done to honor the man that the king delights in? What are your suggestions? Now, Haman's got an ego as big as Texas. So who do you think that Haman thinks King Xerxes wants to honor? Himself. And so he goes in this long list of, well, here's what we should do to honor that special guy. I mean, I won't, you know, say who the name is that I know you're thinking, but here are my suggestions, king. Pick it up in chapter 6. Look at what he suggests. Chapter 6, starting at verse 6. It says, when Haman entered, the king asked, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than moi? And so he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. And then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, whoever that might be, and let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. All right, so that's his suggestion. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Can you imagine Haman's face right at that moment like, huh? I you mean, you weren't talking about me? And verse 11 says, so Haman got the robe. He's ordered to do this. He got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king's delights to honor. I mean, you got a picture of this scene. This is rich, all right? Haman goes into the king's presence hoping to have Mordecai hanged, and he leaves the king's presence having to honor the very guy that he wanted to have hanged. All right, what a twist of events. You talk about something backfiring so Haman has to be the one to put the royal robe on Mordecai, boost him up on the king's royal horse, and then he has to be the guy to lead Mordecai around the streets of the citadel of Susa. Like, hey, this is the guy the king wants to honor. Isn't this a great day for this guy? You know? And then at the end of the story, the Bible says he covers his head. Haman does. Covers his head. He's disgraced. I mean, he's humiliated, and he runs back home. Now, I, I want you to hear me on this because at this point, this is a great little takeaway. Okay? Haman is a picture of pride. Mordecai is a picture of humility. What happens when someone tries to exalt himself? He's put down. What happens when somebody humbles himself? He's lifted up. And that's what we have going on here. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it tells us in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why does God always oppose the proud? Because when we are proud, and I don't mean that in a And there's a decent way to be proud. You can be proud of your kids playing a good game. You know, you can be proud of your kids bring home an A or whatever. You can be proud about certain things that that you are rejoicing about. But when we speak about proud in in its most negative sense, we're talking about when you try to take some glory for things, that it's all about you and your accomplishments and and, you know how you've done this and you've done that, and you're such a great person, and you're so terrific, and and it's all because of me that this has gone so well and all this kind of stuff. What you're actually doing is robbing God of the glory that he deserves. That's why he opposes the proud. Because everything we have and everything we've accomplished, everything we own, every every success we've ever had in life is due to the Lord. That he is the one who has given us those gifts, those abilities, those talents, the wherewithal, those possessions, whatever it might be. We understand in the truest biblical sense that all that we have and all that we are is because of the Lord then we will be careful not to touch the glory. And this is an important thing. Here's the takeaway for you note-takers. Choose humility before God does for you. Because He will not share His glory with another. So choose humility before God does for you. And here's another sub-point to that. You will either be humble by choice, or you will be humble by force. And I guarantee you that humble by choice is always least embarrassing and always most rewarded. Because if God has to humble us, if he forces us into humility, it is often awkward, embarrassing in public. But when we choose to humble ourselves, then we put ourselves in a place where then God can choose to promote us, reward us, and use us for his glory. So it, it really is an, an important little parallel we see here from the dynamics between Haman and Mordecai. Moving on now to chapter 7. So... This has not been a good day for Haman so far, and it's going to get even worse. So he runs home after having to parade Mordecai through the streets of Susa, uh, ashamed and you know, embarrassed and humbled. And he goes back home for just a brief moment, and then the king's attendants come and hasten him off to banquet number two. So chapter 7 now is going to be the real banquet here, where Esther is going to make her request known to the king about saving the Jewish people. And at the same time, she's going to expose Haman as the one behind this plot. So, again, she brings out the chicken wings, and he is well-fed, and he's all happy, Xerxes is. And so he turns to her in chapter 7, he says, All right, let's have it, sweetie. What is is your request? Up to half my kingdom. And look at her response, chapter 7, verse 3. And I'll just read down to the end of the chapter. Chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. All right, pause for a moment. So the king gets up from the table because he's so filled with rage, he wants to cool off a little bit, goes out into the palace gardens... Meanwhile, inside, Haman, in an act of desperation, literally throws himself on the queen. He's like, you've got to have mercy. Please go back. Ask the king to spare my life. So because he's thrown himself literally on her, okay, it doesn't look very appropriate when the king walks back in the palace. All right, pick up the rest. Verse 8. So just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? You hitting on my wife? I don't like what I'm seeing right here. That's what he's saying. So as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, well, I happen to know about a gallows 75 feet high. Don't you love that eunuch right there? I I know a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Talk about a bad day. I mean, in 24 hours, you're skipping around. You're telling your friends how wealthy you are, how wonderful you are, how great you are. And then the next moment, you're having a second banquet. And now you're you're being hanged at the end of the day on the gallows that you built for another guy. So that's, that's the end of Haman here, okay? And what man intended for evil, God intervened and did for good, for the saving of many people. And God in His providential care watches over us, and He takes care of us. And He takes care of the Jewish people, He takes care of all of us as well, because He's a providential, loving God. But in the last few minutes I have left here, I want to share with you some biblical typology in this story that is important to understand the application for us today. Now, when I say biblical typology, it's a fancy word, but here's basically the simple definition. A biblical type simply means that something or someone in the story is symbolic of something or someone else in a larger context. Most often, a type is a person or thing in the Old Testament which foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. Now, let me illustrate this to you in terms of how we use the word type or typical in our own culture today. So, many years ago, when our oldest son, Tyler, was just a toddler... We noticed, you know how when your kids start to grow and when they're first like two and three years old, they start to, you know, you can begin to see their personality develop and how God has wired them. So our oldest son, Tyler, would love to play with his toys, but he always had to have them in a a neat little row, in a nice little line. So always on the living room floor, he'd get all his toys out and always put them in a nice little line. It was perfectly in order, right? And so people would look at him doing that, people who knew me, and they would say, look at Tyler, he's just like his father, that's typical of his dad, because people who know me know that I also, my personality, the way I'm wired, is I like things in order, I like things structured, I like things on time, that's just the way I'm wired, okay, those of you who are spontaneous people, don't judge people like me, all right, you need us, you need us to get to places on time, all right, And we need you, you're spontaneous, and so you'll take us to places we would never really think about going, all right? But we'll get you there on time. We just have to lie about what time we have to leave the house. So people would look at the way Tyler would do that, and they'd say that's typical of his father. In that sense of his personality, it pointed to, it was a representation really of me in some ways. So when you think of biblical typology, you need to look at people and some events and some Things that are symbolic of something else in a larger context. And so here's some biblical typology I want to share with you, basically based on the four main characters or, or people in this story here. First of all, Haman. He is a type of someone or something else. When you look here in chapter 7, verse 6, look at the words that Esther used to describe Haman. In verse 6, she called him the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Circle the words, adversary and enemy. Now, what is that indicative of? Who is Haman a type of when you think about adversary and enemy? Who? Satan. Haman is a type of Satan who is our adversary and enemy. He wants to destroy us. In fact, in 1 Peter 5 8, the Bible says that we need to be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in Matthew 13, 39, Jesus calls the devil the enemy. So he is our enemy, he is our adversary. He is opposed to us. When you also look into this story, you have the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a type of humanity needing to be saved. They need to be rescued. They are about ready to be killed by Haman. And so in that sense, you have this picture, if you will, of Satan who is always aggressively trying to kill all of humanity. You know, Satan knows that his ultimate end is going to be destruction and, uh, you know, not annihilation, but he will be eventually, Revelation 20 tells us, thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever and ever. And his basic plan is I want as many people to go there with me. So he is on the prowl looking for those who he might devour. The Jewish people are a type of humanity that need to be saved and rescued. In this story, you also have King Xerxes. Now, this is a little bit of a flawed type, but nevertheless, it does communicate something to us, and that is that King Xerxes is a type of God the Father, not in a righteous sense, because Xerxes was not a righteous man, but in a royal sense, in the sense of being a supreme king who holds the power of life and death over all the subjects of his kingdom. That is like God the Father. He is king over the universe. He is supreme in a royal sense there. And then finally, you have Esther. You have one who intercedes in between the king, who is sovereign over the kingdom, and the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy all of God's people. And the one who steps in the gap to intervene is Esther. Who is Esther a type of? She's a type of Jesus. She's a type of Christ. She's a type of Christ who stood in the gap to intercede on our behalf to be our advocate to the king so that we might be saved. You get this picture? In Job chapter 16, saw Messiah as our advocate when he wrote, Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 is really a summary of all this, where basically you could say it in three sentences. Satan hates you, God loves you, Jesus died for you. Do you understand that this whole biblical typology paints the picture of our lives today as well? There is an enemy of your soul. His name is Satan. He wants nothing more than to see you destroyed. He wants nothing more than to see you go with him into the eternal punishment. But God, because of His love for you, intervenes, sends His Son Jesus Christ to die on a cross so that faith in Christ means we would be saved from our sins and saved from death. Not that we won't die. We will die physically. Our bodies will decompose and return to dirt from which it came, okay? But it means that we will live eternally because the soul never dies. Everybody here in the hearing of my voice will never die in terms of your soul. The question is, where will you spend eternity? And God has made it possible for as many as receive him, to them that believed on his name, to those who by faith accept what Christ did on the cross to have access to heaven as your eternal reward when you die and to have your sins forgiven no matter what you've ever done, thought or said. That's grace. And that's the love of the Father, where King God, our Father, gave his Son, Jesus to die on a cross, to intercede on behalf of sinful humanity that needs to be saved. All of us need to be saved. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the perfect standard of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Stop comparing yourself to somebody else worse than you to justify your own good behavior. There's none righteous, the Bible says, not one. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God the Father holds out the golden scepter to all who would approach him through his son Jesus, who said from the cross, it is finished. Why? Because what you and I could not do to gain heaven ourselves, Jesus did for us and then offers it as a free gift, the forgiveness of sins and the hope and the promise of heaven when we die. This is the gospel message. Wrapped up right here in Esther 5, 6, and 7.
1: Find the your connection, run towards your new life. We're so glad you tuned in for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Be sure to join us next time to continue the story of Queen Esther and discover her courage to help step into difficult or impossible situations. Esther was an orphan and part of an exiled group of people, yet, God elevated her and used her in mighty ways. No matter who you are or what your situation is, God can use your life for his glory. He also promises to walk alongside you in every moment, providing strength, courage, and love everlasting. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. And you're invited to join us for weekend services of worship and learning together. Our services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. Or for more in-depth study time in the Word, join us Wednesday nights at 7. If you're not in the area, you can still hear more from Pastor Gary. Live stream our services or download the Cornerstone Connection app, providing you with access to our archive of teachings. Find out more at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so glad we had this time together today. And we encourage you to join us again for more in the book of Esther, right here on Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, you're not alone.